does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman Dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean By providence impoverished and squalor Grow up to be a hero and a scholar The ten dollar founded father without a father Got a lot farther by working a lot harder By being a lot smarter by being a self-starter By fourteen They placed him in charge of a trading charter. And every day while slaves were being slaughtered and carted away across the waves. All right, you know what that is. I don't have to explain this anymore. (laughs) Welcome to the news. Uh, Today, we're going to do one of two things. Um, The more likely of them is that we're going to start with the fact that, yes, Disney Plus has aired the movie version uh, shot on stage uh, of Hamilton uh, and what that means and what it uh, foretells perhaps about the future of a currently dormant dormant American uh, live theater uh, and and have a conversation that kind of sprawls around a lot of the issues that swirl around uh, this prodigious accomplishment, Hamilton. The other possibility is we're going to have that conversation and there'll be still enough time to talk about the fact that Kanye West is running for president, at which point one of the two nose panelists is going to refuse to talk. So which could be, you know, that could be a moment that could be exciting. Anyway, I think the former thing is more likely. Let's uh, talk about the show today uh, and who those panelists are. I should say this is kind of fun because we've all worked in theater in various ways, uh, me less than the two uh, panelists today, but we've all had the experiences of getting shows on stage and stuff like that. So, Tanisha Dugan is producing associate at Theater Works. Jacques Lamar is a playwright and director of client services at Buzz Engine. Uh, and yeah, um, it, uh, Hamilton played. Uh, originally at the Public Theater, where 300 people saw it every performance. It moved to the Richard Rogers Theater, where 1,300 people saw it with every performance. But as Lin-Manuel Miranda himself said, um, the first weekend that Disney showed it, more people saw it uh, than all of those audiences combined. And you could probably throw in the touring shows as well, including the one that played in Hartford. So let's just begin with the product itself, with the experience of sitting down wherever you sit down to watch things and watching Hamilton on whatever kind of screen you watch it on. So um, so Jacques, because Tanisha kind of describes herself as the more recent adopter, I, I should say I'm just a sick Hamilton fan. I've certainly listened to the <laughs> album, you know, 600 times or something. And, you know, I'm just obnoxious about the whole thing. But uh, uh, Jacques, uh, in terms of a translation from stage uh, to this format, how do you think things went? Um, well, I mean, it's it's what I, what I really appreciated about it was um, the that that it showcased um, the show beautifully. Uh, it's gorgeous to look at um, in a way that may not be possible in the theater. Um, the level of detail that you get is so terrific and so great. And you can stop and rewind when some of these insane bursts of lyrics happen. And you're like, wait, wait, you know, what do they say? You know, like some of it is so fast. Um, the lighting is gorgeous. The costumes are stunning. I love the <clears throat> simplicity and flexibility of the set. Um, you know, when you think about mega musicals, uh, you know, because of things starting with cats, you know, having these you know, gigantic sets that keep changing and moving or what have you, 
um, to have something that's basically a static set with just a revolve um, is a masterwork of staging. Um, so, and for me, one of the pleasures of watching it is really noticing the ensemble and that the ensemble is doing very interesting character-based work. It's not just a chorus line of tapping uh, in unison. There's there real there's real character work ha happening there, and so I think the the film invites us more deeply into it if we've seen the show before and if we have not seen the show um it uh it's a great presentation of it um absolutely uh, agree with everything that you just said how about you tanisha how 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 overall was the experience it was good you know i watched it sort of I mean, I've watched it many times because uh, my children's father has become obsessed with it. I think he is much like you, Colin. Uh, he will turn it on literally every day at breakfast time while the kids are, you know, having breakfast. So we have seen the first 20 minutes of the first act on repeat since July 3rd. Um, but when it was first released, I saw it like in the middle of the night when it first released because I was really curious as somebody who uh, is producing theater post-COVID, um, what this could be for us. Um, and then I watched it again the next night with my family, which was a really, like, cool experience. We, like, loved the intermission, you know? Like, we loved being able to, like, stop, and everybody, like, went and refilled cocktails or, you know, Kool-Aid. We don't drink Kool-Aid, but you get it. Uh, we got popcorn. Everyone took, you know, a bathroom break. And it was just sort of – and I asked my family. I was like, so, you know – was that intermission annoying? And they were like, no, it was so great. Um, so I think, you know, as a social activity, particularly if you live in a family pod like we do, um, there was something that felt very, unlike the first time I watched it, which kind of left me feeling like, oh, this is a great piece of work, but um, I'm missing some of the things that makes it theater. But when I watched it, you know, the second time with the crew, it felt a little bit more like uh, a thing I knew. Um, and that's just got me thinking about, you know, how to, how to create socially distant or family pod experiences with theater via a screen. I don't know. It was an overall good time. <laughs> no, no, it has to be a great time. It has to be like the greatest thing that ever happened to you. Uh, well, I know, and you know, like I—I I think I said this in the in the emails. You know, I came up when Rent came out, and I was like rabid about that show, and so I understand the feelings people have around a musical that resembles the feelings people have around Hamilton. I'm not quite sure why Hamilton didn't bite me in that way. Um, I'm sure it's my side eye about the device of it. Um, which I'm sure we'll explore later on in our conversation. Um, but I suspect that that had me going, eh, well, you know, <laughs> cool. And not, right. the not simply the device of the music, the device of, of the bodies telling the story. I think I, I don't know. I think I've well, always had like a little bit of shade or side eye about it. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to. I definitely want to come back to you and your side eye. Um, I, I just, just for the fun of putting it into that kind of perspective, though. Um, I mean, Jacques, you and I, 
we've been around a bit, you know. <laughs> uh, and I, you, you're a playwright. I grew up a little bit as in first grade. I was hanging around the set of a Broadway show where my father had written the book. Uh, um, but I've seen a lot of shows too, and we're old enough so that you know we can be the guy in Merrily We Roll Along who goes, "There's not a song you can hum. There's not a song that goes bum 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 de bum." So we could be the people going, "Well, this isn't Showboat, you know. This isn't. <laughs> this is not Guys and Dolls." Uh, but to me, I really, you know, we, we emailed about West Side Story. West Side Story, I think, you know, prior to now stood as this just, you know, paradigm shift, this huge leap in terms of what could happen in a Broadway musical. And, and it turned out to be a feat that was very, very difficult, if not impossible to repeat, even for Bernstein. Uh, but this feels like that, you know, this feels yeah. that big to me. I, but, uh, you know, you spent way more time around theater than I have. Uh, I, I, where are you on this? Well, you know, I was thinking about your comment about West Side Story, and I was like, all right, where do I see West Side Story's influences? And maybe somewhat of an extent, Rent. Um, but I think about those kind of seismic moments, uh, and I, I would include Showboat in a, as a seismic moment, and how race, from the literally from the inception of what we consider the American musical, um, with Showboat and race in West Side Story and race in Hamilton. Um, I think it's interesting that, you know, what is considered, you know, one of the great contributions of American culture to the world um, from its outset, uh, the things that have these, these kind of titanic shows um, show are, that we're still... You know, when was Showboat? The 1920s? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, still wrestling, <laughs> still uncomfortable, uh, and still using this form uh, in interesting uh, interesting ways. And, you know, I uh, had mentioned in our back and forth that um, I don't think we've seen yet if there is going to be an impact in terms of how um, American musical theater is produced as a result of Hamilton. Um, right. I, mean, I, I think I'm there with you on that, too. We were emailing about that, and I think it's an open question because really uh, I talked about how my father went, was there on opening night of West Side Story with a bunch of other playwrights, and they all walked out and said, well, that's it. You know, we're not, Everything has to be different from now on because, because of this. And that really wasn't the case. Things weren't that different. You know, musicals just kind of gradually evolved in the way that they did, and eventually Sondheim became you know, the dominant force. But, but yeah, and, and I, I wonder about this. I, I wonder whether it's sui generis or whether it's a, a thing that you build on and build on, you know, not just in terms of it being a hip hop expression uh, of a whole bunch of things, but just in all of the ways that, that it's special. I just wonder, you know, whether you'll see other things that, you know, are are at that level. I know, Tanisha, you believe that if theater does what it's supposed to do, then there's going to be some kind of, you know, straight line from Hamilton to something else that's every bit as good, if, if not better. Yeah, and I, you know, I'll say I don't know if it's a straight line because I was actually interested in you guys' emails back and forth in West Side Story, and I, w I actually craved more back and forth between the two of you about it because I think for me, 
West Side Story feels so boilerplate, right? Like it's just a part of the canon and it doesn't feel special to me, which I want, I was really interested in, in sort of understanding what I was missing as somebody who kind of, who's come to the genre as, as you know, I mean, I was born in 82, right? So like, <laughs> I, yeah, my, um, I, I just was really like, like, oh, I wonder, like, what, what have I been missing about West Side Story um, that may apply to how I can see Hamilton having an effect? Because I suspect West Side Story has had an effect, and I just don't know it because it's just been the modern musical theater as I know it. Um, and so I think, if, if anything, it's quite possible that Hamilton's effect will feel like that. It will feel like, oh, well, this is how musicals have always been right like we can follow the arc from you know the early 1900s to forever right um and and see where hamilton came came in um but i'm i wonder if the reverberations of it will feel subtler right um i think you're gonna see you know i've read i'm i i'm on a a couple of reading panels um and i can say in the past two years i have seen i've read and listened to a number of musicals that feel like hamilton and it probably won't surprise you that a number of those musicals are written by latinx um musical theater writers Mm -hmm. and a, a lot of the conversation that i have with panels about it is i'm not quite sure if this is this writer's voice or if this is their understanding of how they can break into this industry because this was the accepted latinx voice so far and so I'll add that to the conversation too, which is I think Hamilton's um, a lasting effect may not be simply in the book, may not simply be in um, the music. I think it may be in really elevating Lynn beyond um, in the heights, right? Something that felt very much um, of his background, right? He managed mm-hmm. with, I think, Hamilton to make this an immigrant an immigrant story, which feels quintessentially American, which feels outside of his Latinxness, um, and allowed him to be placed firmly in the canon and and um, and, and placed in the canon as a Latinx body. So I think that that to me is the legacy of this piece more so than what the work does, because for some because it doesn't. I don't know. One of the things that I was watching intently last night is how. Um, they use white bodies versus uh, performers of color. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the only uh, kind of main and he's really secondary or tertiary character is King George in term that's played by a, a white actor. And there's like two or three white performers in the ensemble. They, and um, it's such a... Uh, controversion of what you would normally see in a Broadway musical where it would be maybe you would have one or two performers of color in the ensemble and most likely in main roles that were not designated to be played specifically by people of color. You know, that you would go see 42nd Street or something and there would maybe be a black person who'd snuck into the chorus line somehow. And so to see what seemed like a very purposeful flipping of the way Broadway normally does business, Mm -hmm. 
um, was really kind of terrific for me. And seeing white actors marginalized in a certain sense, and the you know one of the kind of things about King George is he's a bit of a fop and a buffoon. See, I, I would have stopped um, there and say. Yeah, I, I want to shout out to Jonathan Groff indeed. Yeah, I still can't, I still can't wrap my mind around the fact that he's the guy in Mindhunter. It's just, it's right. just, this, but, but I do want to say I would also push back a little against against secondary tertiary. I think one of the one of the you know eighty two. I feel like Lin Manuel Miranda in creating this musical. It must have been just one of these stretches of time where every idea you have is a really good idea you know so you know two of his good ideas was to were to make burr the chorus which is an amazing idea i mean burr is himself all the time in the show but he's the chorus too he's the only character who really gets to address the audience on a regular basis about what's going on and then to make king george the fool uh, in a very shakespearean sense king george is the fool but he's the fool like so many shakespearean fools who does know some things that the other characters don't know you know he understands some of the things that are going to happen when they don't he understands it in this very demented literally frothing at the mouth in the case of jonathan Groff's performance way but he does he, he he does see around corners in a way that the rest of them can't and and to me it's a really important performance i mean i jock i totally endorse everything else that you just said which is yeah. yes it's oh, thrilling I mean, to see all these other guys in terms of moving the action forward yes he's not essential like if you took those numbers out the show wouldn't fall apart they um i love the performance and the writing is really brilliant and it shows that lin-manuel miranda you know this may have been you know uh said to be a hip-hop musical but there are so many musical styles going on in here mm -hmm. and uh you know i think um that's what i meant by like a tertiary character that right he, He's not central to the action of the play. Right. And, uh, you know, that's a great point that he's making, too, uh, Tanisha, is we call it a hip-hop musical because Lin-Manuel Miranda calls it a hip-hop musical. But, you know, one of the things I shared with you guys is on one of my dog walks, I kind of walked through, you know, the, the the four or five iconic Jewish songwriters and, <laughs> and musical inventors who started the Broadway musical, pl plus Cole Porter, uh, and thought about what each one of them would think. And the truth is... You know, Jerome Kern would have watched, looked at the room where it happened and thought, well, that's a really cool song. I wish I'd written that song. You know, and I think even Berlin would look at, you know, Thomas Jefferson's song, What Did I Miss? And go, wow, that is a very kicky song. I wish I'd written that song. I mean, there, are, it's a hip hop musical that has all kinds of other styles in it, as Jacques is saying, that, you know, that really do just go all the way back in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I celebrate and also side eye. It's called it being called a hip hop musical, right? It's an it's an opera, um, and they use spoken word as the main device to deliver the scenes. Um, but I think some of the most, you know, satisfied is one of my favorite songs in the in the show, and that is like. Quint to me, it's like quintessential musical theater, you know, power ballad. <laughs> like it's, it's like it's not trying to be anything else. Um, and Lynn is in, an incredible storyteller through music. I mean, my family is a Moana fam, you know, family. And if you think about the arc of those songs in that movie, you're just like, I mean, and and that has been a, a quintessentially. That's my word for today. You're welcome. The word for the day is quintessential.
sponsored by the letter Q. Um, there's something about, I think, you know, the way he uses song to deliver story. And that is so Disney um, that, he, you know, this is like, a, this is like the perfect dream for him. You know, like he is in no better company than Mencken and, you know, the friends that you listed as well. Um, but I think there's something about the, the animated movies and the, and the way he uses song to tell story um, that rises um, beyond a genre, although we want to call this, um, we desperately want to call this a hip hop uh, yeah. musical. Well, it's, it's, it's mostly because he, he calls it that. He said, I wanted to do a hip hop musical uh, about about Hamilton. But uh, yeah, I, I think know, we all... if I go into that, let, yeah. let's, you know, it's the same as putting the brown bodies in there. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so, I'm going uh, to look and I'm going to see his hip hop musical and go, I get it because nobody else. He's a brilliant guy, 100%. And in a landscape of traditional musicals and revivals, saying that I am producing a hip-hop musical means something. But I right. think, actually, you know, he was paying homage to the hip-hop that he keeps... He's paying homage to American music, which is inclusive of all of these. Right. Although, you know, the more hip-hop that you know, the more there are, like, so many sort of old-school hip-hop kind of jokes in, in it, little callbacks to Biggie and stuff like that. I mean... It, oh, my it, God. The room... The, the family room erupted yeah. when... Uh, they, they do the countdown and and my children's father was like yo that's a biggie song and that i think was when he fell in love when he right. was like he literally took that exact song and recreated it um and you're so, right there are all of these wonderful easter eggs for hip-hop heads which i think is why busta came so often yeah busta rhymes it was mentioned in one of the sort of post show docs that we watched uh, Buster Rhymes became a regular visitor and sometimes he wouldn't even he would just come to hang out with the cast afterwards and they were all very worshipful worshipful you know Jacques since she brought it up and it yeah. came up before we went I just want to say a word about satisfied and maybe get your reaction to it because we've now watched it the watch the the movie in this house twice and I, I mean I, I am so geeked out on the album that it's it's ridiculous but watching the movie and seeing what's really done there, I, I inevitably nudge the other person on the couch and go, okay, this what they're about to do is so incredible because Satisfied, just for, to remind people, uh, is a replaying of the previous or one of the previous scenes. Uh, you've, seen the, the, you've seen Eliza and Alexander Hamilton fall in love. Now you see Angelica rewind, and it is literally kind of in a backward-sounding way on stage, rewound so that you see, in fact, this whole other thought process that you had not been privy to, you know, that is a completely different narrative and that one of the narratives that will propel so much of the pathos uh, of the play, especially in the second act. And Jacques, I don't just in terms of stagecraft and invention and stuff, I was thinking, wow, what's that like? Nothing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that whole moment where it literally rewinds mm -hmm. and it's very clearly using pre-recorded yes. musical moments um, is unlike anything I've ever seen on stage. And, um, and it is uh, a quintessential Broadway power ballad, but at the same time, she's rapping her brains out too. She's yes. singing and then rapping. And, you know, uh, I mean, Hal Binkley, who's done a lot of work at Hartford Stage, his lighting in that is insane. Oh, God, and so gorgeous. It's just so brilliant. 
And the musical is brilliant in that it sets you up to think Angelica is going to be the one for him. Mm-hmm. And then it pulls the rug out from underneath you with that number. And she ends up getting, uh, you know, off to the side for much of the show where Eliza ends up coming forward. So it just confounds your expectations again of a Broadway musical saying, all right, she's clearly the love interest and in a certain way she is, but she gets packed off to France or or England or wherever she goes. And um, it just, it, it upends so many expectations, I think. All right. We should take a break here. Uh, if we keep talking about theater, we won't have to talk about Kanye West, which means that Tanisha won't have to refuse to talk about Kanye West. Although I was, I will sort of miss that moment if it doesn't happen. Uh, I can tie it together. <laughs> yes. Okay. So uh, I'll give you a cue in the second half, and then you do kind of a Papulian through line, you know, kind of yank okay, this whole thing uh, in a certain direction. All right. We're going to take a break, uh, and Jacques and Tanisha and I will be back. That's not actually from Hamilton. So um, here we are. We're back, uh, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit more. I I think we also need to kind of broaden this out a little bit more into theater and careers and things like that. Tanisha Dugan is producing associate at Theater Works. Jacques Lamar is a playwright and director of client services at Buzz Engine. Uh, They are with me, the nose, today. Um, You know, one of the things I said in our, our emails, Tanisha, was that when I was first kind of contemplating i mean i think one thing is having seen the touring show and then you see this cast and you see them you know in in such high resolution then you realize how absolutely amazing they are this isn't just a bunch of people performing lin-manuel miranda this is person after person after person just doing stuff that just is indelibly great and and a lot of these people are just people that going in I personally did not know, you know, I mean, Renee Elise Goldsberry, it turns out she's Angelica. She works a lot. She's she was like on The Good Wife for like practically every season. And she's, she's done a lot of stuff, you know, but basically I was having the same experience I had when I first watched The Wire, which was all these performers of color would come on and I would go, wow. That guy's really great. How come I've never seen him before? And the truth is, you know, the answer was there wasn't any really good material. And and so out of that, you know, Idris Elba and Michael B. Jordan, I mean, some people kind of went forward. Some other people, I, I almost never did see them again. Uh, and I wonder about this, too. I mean, obviously, David Diggs is just very hot right now, and he's he's going to stay hot. And Leslie Odom, Jonathan McPants thinks he'll win the Oscar for Best Actor for this movie. Um, uh, Philip, Philippa Sue and and Goldsberry, they're, you know, uh, they're around, they're going to be around. But you sort of wonder about that. You know, Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote this musical so that there would be a musical that people like him could be in. 
And and you you do wonder like can these incredible performing careers stay what they are right now? Mm. Well, I mean, I think they definitely captured lightning in the bottle. I mean, it's one of the greatest companies um, I've ever heard. Um, and so that's just, you know, that's the dream, right? Is that you can, you can get into a room with the artists who can take your work to a whole nother level. And, and they did that with this company. I think, you know, I suspect they'll all be around. Um, why? Because I think... God willing, we're tired, particularly white people are tired of having this conversation. <laughs> so I think by, by making sure that, that we're just inclusive and we don't have to have the conversation anymore, um, we will see these people emerge um, in ways that maybe didn't happen after The Wire um, because they are all incredibly talented. And I am equally as impressed, you know, Lynn talked about the, the way in which they shot this and it was mostly, you know, run-throughs but they did this kind of like overnight of of close-ups and single shots and, and pickup shots and I think you know as you said about Renee this realization that these these were actors that weren't just theater actors that were very very much um uh in the mix of making tv and film already so they were able to you know the combination of having run the show for a million years before they shot it and also understanding how to work the camera. I mean, I'll go back to Jonathan Graff. The choices, you know, of the spittle, right? This very thing that would make all of us cringe <laughs> in a post-COVID world um, is so fantastic. It's such a small choice that if you weren't at the front of the theater, you probably never experienced it. But it is so specific and small and tells the story of this madman who literally doesn't care who is around him, right? Like the, the <laughs> he is he is the angry white man who doesn't want to wear a mask. You know what I mean? Like it's just um, the specificity of choices, and, and it makes Lynn, who I think I probably would have rolled, I, I probably would have appreciated more not on screen um, because the moments of emotion. I don't think he's got the. That's just not his forte, you know, um, becomes very apparent to me as a, as a looker. I'm like, oh, he's stage acting that. <laughs> that. Um, uh, but he's a star. And so the TV and, and you know, that closeness of, of being ne next to somebody with, with magnetism um, takes care of it all. Um, I think you're going to see these actors for a long time. Well, you know, I mean, Jacques, there's another part of this, too, which is money. I mean, this show made so much money and it's going to continue to make so much money that, you know, in a way that's probably not true of The Wire. Having been in it means, you know, I mean, there's the, the producers, they smell money very, very like sharks smell blood in the water. <laughs> so, I mean, people who've been in it, I mean, that's just another very callous and cynical reason why you, you think maybe they're going to get work. Well, you know, I mean, there are people like when you think about Jennifer Holiday and Dream Girls, like she was so amazing in it. But then what other opportunities came her way? Right. And so you it, it's not necessarily a foregone conclusion that these actors, I mean, they're hugely talented. And they're in the absolute right parts for them. I hope, 
I hope because they deserve it because they're so talented that we will continue to see them and they won't be pigeonholed in. All right. Now we have to find another hip hop musical because there was never another dream girls, you know? And so, um, which again, I think is another seismic American musical that deals with race. Um, so I, I want to see, um, I would love to see them all in other things because they were just so stunning. Um, and I hope they're given the opportunity to show their range. Yes. I think maybe I'm naive, but I, I, I really think producers, I think uh, television and film um, execs are tired of being fired for not working with complete casts that maybe I'm Pollyanna and naive, but I feel like the conversation of will they find work is, is fundamentally different now because they are, because we are asking and in some cases demanding that you look at these actors as phenomenal actors, probably better than the mediocre other ones that are working <laughs> by virtue of the way things work. Um, but maybe that's Pollyanna of me. I don't know. Well, yeah, yeah no, the- I, I am. Um, I agree. I mean, I think it's it's very different now than it was, say, when Dreamgirls mm-hmm. uh, came out. And I think also, um, these actors are now no longer just stage actors; they're TV and movie actors. Uh, in terms of what the Hamilton film has done for their level of exposure, I don't think that Disney Plus has or will release viewership numbers. Yeah. Um, for this, uh, they they have ruled that it is not Oscar eligible. It is Emmy eligible. Uh-huh. Um, so all these people. Sorry, Jonathan. Yeah, I'm sorry, McPants. Um, so they, not that anyone watches the Emmys anymore, but uh, I, this cast is going to be able to, you know, add to their Tonys and Grammys with Emmys. Um, and so I think. Uh, this filmed theater and it's not the first musical that was shown in a film state the way it was you know pretty much originally staged but it yeah you know you know more about this than i do so what like what are the other examples of anything that's kind of like this well i know um for example andrew lloyd weber uh his Love Never Dies, the terrible sequel to Phantom of the Opera. They filmed the Australian version, <laughs> and I saw it in a movie theater here. And it um, during the pandemic shutdown, um, they he they played that. They played his, you know, they filmed Cats with Elaine Page. They filmed uh, um, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, a good chunk of the Sondheim canon like Passion and Into the Woods um, have been filmed uh, and shown on PBS. So in I guess that that's regard, right, yeah. I think you can even see the Sweeney Todd with, um, uh, you know, with Len Carew and... and yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a so, box set. Angela, yeah. And Angela Lansbury. So, and most recently, um, Spike Lee did Passover, Ant- Antoinette Nwandu's Passover, which is at Steppenwolf. Mm-hmm. And they shot that to a point that um, Jacques had made in our emails back and forth, like kind of missing the audience element, uh, Spike made a choice to bring audience in to shoot. So interspersed between the scenes um, are audience reaction shots. Um, and that's on Amazon, I believe. And I think that's, to me, like the Hamilton and Passover together create a really interesting model of how to both record 
theater for the screen, but also I think a way forward for us in the, in the near future. I just want to say, thank God this was done, you know, I mean, because and done with these people, because whatever choices would have been made on on an actual screen adaptation, which I assume will happen at some point, you know, and it'll be James Corden, it'll be King George. And, you know, and just like, I don't, it is so important to me to see it with these people who established themselves in these roles, who created these roles, as opposed to bigger name actors. You know, I mean, I don't know that Les Mis is a great show at all, but having Russell Crowe run around on stage and (laughs) Anne Hathaway, and I just like, you know. You know, Center archives, you know, pretty much every, you know, major production in New York, they're filmed and archived. They're just not accessible to the public. And I, I agree. I mean, to me, I think the, the amazing thing is this is a, a show that even though it's a show that appeared five years ago, um, is still like the biggest musical out there. And the fact that we were able to watch it at home for six ninety nine, um, as opposed to going and playing the paying the ridiculous prices that they charge for Broadway shows now, particularly this one, and to me that has always been the biggest shame of Hamilton is the cost for the people who have enjoyed the album and you know have to decide do I want to have a major appliance or go see the show. Or, or as uh, Christopher Jackson said, dip into the 401k, uh, forego a vacation. Yeah, the, the money was incredible. Look, this, this conversation is uh, running fast, and I do want to uh, leave room on the other side for endorsements. But, you know, I mean, the, the, the theaters are going to be dark for a really long time. Um, I mean, Maybe. Broadway's going to be, well, kind of looks that way. By the way, uh, Jonathan, Broadway will be dark. Yeah, Broadway will be dark. Uh, by the way, Jonathan McPants wants you to know he's, he's going to play this all the way out to the end. He says Oscar eligibility is still an open question. I think he's, <laughs> he's hired Norm Pattis to represent Leslie Odom. You know, who knows? Um, but, um, Okay, yeah, so Broadway will be dark. Theaters are going to do what they can do. But, you know, even as this has happened, you know, all kinds of other stuff has been tried. I mean, Richard Nelson wrote another Apple Family play, and they put it on YouTube. You know, I mean, theater is trying to keep going in lots of different ways. And and I guess, you know, I, I don't know that there's an exact jumping off point from Hamilton to that, but I'd love to hear both of you, starting with you, Tanisha, just talk about how, how does live theater get through, say, the next four to six months? So I think I'm pressing on you not because I've got any big reveal from theater works, but as a theater maker, I'm pressing on the idea that, like, what happens to theater in this time? Um, because I think we've conflated the storytelling in the dark with people with this idea that it happens in a particular place, in a particular building, at a typical, at a, at a particular capacity, right? And I think if we... To me, theater is storytelling that, that within a community. I think you can do that digitally, but I'm actually interested as a theater maker in, and maybe that's because I spent the past five years making theater in a really intimate space. I'm interested in making theater in a really intimate space. I'm interested in making theater for five people, 10 people, 25 people, 50 people, right? Which, you know, under the current economic model makes it 
you know, untenable for a quote unquote theater, which is the institution. But I don't think that it, it denies the work of theater as an art form. And so that's, that's kind of what, where I'm pressing um, back against you, because I think part of the industry's problem is that it was, you know, we were a bunch of misfits who found success by, Amer- by American uh, standards. And that is deeply tied to capitalism. It's deeply tied to um, feeling um, appreciated under a kind of white paradigm. And I think that has, squ- at least over the past decade, has squashed the kind of innovation that theater can do. Um, so I'm, I'm actually excited by the next six months, 24 months, where we're like really going back to the roots of what we do, which is storytelling and community building preferably in the dark right. if you're willing and, to stand it and, um but and, that's what i'm excited by yeah no, we should say that you know also over the last 10 to 20 years at least theater is constantly experimenting with its own form you go down to the festival of arts and ideas and pancakes down there in new haven you know and there are there are things that are theater that don't at all involve large groups of people sitting in the same space but involve people roaming different landscapes or a group of people sitting around a table um there you can there's things like sleep no more where you're exploring a building that's sort of telling you a macbeth story so there 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 are other options but let's ask the playwright about this what about you, Jacques? You know, I'm participating in a playwrights intensive right now, and um, this event would the Kennedy have... Center. Talk about yourself, yeah. Whoa. Kennedy Center, whoop whoop. Um, and it's it's been great, uh, you know. And we're doing it by Zoom. It would have been in person, um, but you know, one of the things that's interesting about how we pivoted is, uh, you know, is now that they're. Now we're having conversations via, fa- via Facebook in between our classes. And one of the things that got posted was a survey that showed that people, the public, are, um, are saying, you know, that they are not interested in re-entering a theater space until potentially May or June of next year, which is terrifying um, for, you know, what it means for, you know, where's the money coming from to keep you know, a place like theater works together so they don't get all cast to the winds. I know Ivanka has said, you know, people would need to go find something new. Uh, but, you know, it's like if if these things splinter and get thrown to the wind, you know, and are we, are we basically looking at um, starting American theater again from the ground up? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really um, scary. You know, I, I don't want to think about Hartford not having a Hartford stage or a theater works. Um, you know, I think, so I think, uh, you know, that's, that's a scary thing at the same time. Um, people who did not necessarily have access to those stages all have, you know, if they have access to a computer and the internet have an access to theater now that they didn't have before. And so, um, you know, like theater works, for example, uh, before Hamilton, showed their production of of next to normal in full and mm-hmm. you could watch it did you guys charge or was it a donation or uh yeah it was a donation we did did it mostly free to our subscribers yeah yeah and um you know i look at uh like ted lang who is isaac the bartender from love boat and he was the bartender in christmas on the rocks he is putting full-length plays up you know he's doing zoom readings with actors mm-hmm. and just putting the plays up you know intact two hours long on YouTube, 
and right. anyone can watch them for free. And the public, the public has done a similar thing with uh, like a lot of its stuff too. Yeah, and yeah. so, yeah, so, and the National Theater is doing it uh, over, you know, and and we're able to watch these things stateside that we never would have seen or would have had to pay to go right. to movies. I'm, I'm getting the wrap it up signal from two different people here on my okay. Slack. So uh, we got to take a break here. We'll come back just in time for endorsements. All right. Special thanks to Cat Pastor, who just informed me we have less than five minutes uh, left in the whole show. Uh, and uh, John, she's there running the studio. Jonathan McNichol produced this episode, uh, otherwise known as Jonathan McPants. Uh, we'll be back on Monday, I think, with the scramble. I don't know too much about it. So let's just get uh, to the endorsements with Jacques Lamar and uh, Tanisha Dugan. Jacques, why don't you uh, get us started? Okay, um, I want to endorse two things. One is I didn't really get much of a chance to try it before the shutdown, and they're now doing takeout and uh, limited indoor seating, but um, Cafe Aura in Manchester, where uh, uh, Gino Oriema has taken over the former Cavi's space. So nice to have a nice restaurant in Manchester. So um, uh, we've ordered some delicious stuff uh, for takeout and got fancy at home. Uh, the other thing, and I've only listened to halfway through, but uh, the for- the artists formerly known as the Dixie Chicks, now just known as the Chicks, have dropped their new album, Gaslighter, and I've listened to about half of it. It's fantastic. All right. They were on Morning Edition today, too, uh, or something. They were on some other NPR show. Uh, Tanisha Dugan, what have you got for us? I'm going to endorse one thing. I'm going to endorse Natural Annie Essentials. They are a Black-owned, Connecticut-based um candle company and i'm going to shout out cinder and salt for bringing them cinder and salt of middletown hometown what uh for bringing that uh company to us um proud of white women owned uh companies that elevate and amplify black voices and black um owned businesses woohoo thank you all right you're and you're losing control of your household even as you speak so um uh see the na- <laughs> <How dare you? laughs> say the name of the candle company again because people will miss it what was it called annie's Oh, it's called Natural Annie Essentials, and she's Natural based Annie. out of Bridgeport. Very cool. All right, so I tried to find some things that would uh, connect to what we were doing. Uh, we'll do another Middletown shout-out. Obviously, Lynn Manuel Miranda got his education uh, in Middletown. There's another uh, sort of show tune writer who uh, was a Middletown native. I discovered this by accident, went to Wesleyan for a while, and then went to Hollywood to write for shows, and his name was Ali Rubel. Uh, he was the son of uh, the owners of a department store in, in Middletown called Rubel's. Uh, it was, I think, women's and children's clothing and stuff like that. Uh, anyway, he ignominiously <laughs> wrote Zippity Doodah, uh, but he also wrote a number of very uh, beautiful, beautiful songs, especially Gone with the Wind, which has nothing to do with the movie or the book. It would be horrible if you wrote Zippity Doodah and theme music to Gone with the Wind. You could never survive that. But no, the, co- completely unconnected. I would recommend everybody, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, you name it, has recorded the, this song. Check out Doris Day. Doris Day is such an underrated singer. She did a beautiful job with Gone with the Wind by Ali Rubel of Middletown. Uh, also, I uh, want to do a couple of other things that are kind of connected. Uh, Renee Elise Goldsberry, as I said, she plays Angelica Schuyler uh, in, uh, in Hamilton. She's had this amazing career. But check her out in the Documentary Now uh, episode called Original Cast Album Condo, uh, which is it's, it's basically a send-up of, uh, I think it's D.A. Pennybaker's, 
there's a famous uh, documentary about the making of the original cast album of Follies or no of Company, excuse me. Uh, and anyway, she's in it. She's terrific. She has this killer song uh, about uh, getting her condo membership, uh, and she she's very very funny and uh, every bit as wonderful as she is in Hamilton. And then lastly, I'm fascinated by how things come together. You know, how do you how do you get to Hamilton? How do you get all those people? How do they come together? I, I want to know that in a lot of other contexts. So uh, there's a thing called the Origins Podcast, uh, and they uh, are right now celebrating the 20th anniversary uh, of um, of Almost Famous. Uh, and there's a whole sh- uh, there's too many episodes of this, but the 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 episode about the casting of Almost Famous is really fascinating. So it's a podcast. It's called Origins. Thanks to Tanisha Dugan. Thanks to Jacques Lamar. Thanks to everybody else. And we will be back on Monday. About Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah